0: 1973, the bad boys of Boston, Aerosmith, came out with a song titled Dream On. Um, I would sing it for you, but I can't get that high, that Steven Tyler register that he's at. But he says there's a line in that song that I love. He says, You've got to lose to know how to win. And I think Steven Tyler was on to something because sometimes it is the defeats in our lives that often prepare us for the greater victories. You've got to lose to know how to win because defeats and failure have a power to change us in a way that victories never could. Am I right? Defeats and failure in our lives have a way to change us in a way that victories never could. And my question this morning is, do you feel perhaps defeated this morning? Or perhaps do you feel like a failure? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you feel fine today, but life does have a way, doesn't it, of bringing up our past mistakes. So maybe you feel fine today, but you know that from time to time... That your past mistakes are going to creep into the back of your mind and you're going to feel shame, you're going to feel regret, you're going to feel hurt, you're going to feel wounds, and you're going to be reminded of your defeat, you're going to be reminded of your failure. But I want you to know this morning that by the grace of God and through the power of the gospel, your defeats and your failures can actually lead you into greater joy and greater purpose. And I want us to look this morning to, uh, I want to explain this to you by looking this morning to Genesis 32, which is the story of Jacob. And what we see in the story of Jacob in Genesis 32 is a defeat in Jacob's life that Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a low down guy, but he, there was a defeat in his life that changed him into a new man. And it transformed him. And I believe that if we are wise, we will allow the story of Jacob to transform us as well. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to walk through the passage. Just tell the story a little bit. And then I'll offer some application at the end. But the story begins with Jacob. And Jacob is preparing to go on a journey back to his hometown that he had left 20 years earlier. And like many of you, my hometown... Uh, brings his past painful memories. I don't know if anybody has a situation like that where when I think of my hometown, um, I, I grew up in Alabama. You can probably hear it coming out of my mouth a little bit. I'm not from around here. I grew up in Alabama and uh, coming to New York in some ways was me trying to leave behind some past failures and past shame. But when I think of my hometown, I often think of it with regret. Maybe that's you, but that was definitely Jacob. Jacob looked back on his hometown that he left 20 years earlier, and there there was a past there. Because two decades earlier, Jacob had left home in a hurry, actually as a fugitive. He was running for his life because he actually robbed his brother, his barely older twin brother, of his birthright and his father's blessing. And so the birthright in that culture would have been two-thirds of the father's inheritance. And so, the way it would work is the oldest son in the family would get two thirds of the inheritance, and then the rest of the siblings would split the other third. And usually, their families were quite large. So, the oldest son got a lot, and then the, all the other siblings got just very little, just divvied up among them. And so, to, to be the oldest son, to have the birthright of the oldest son, was a big deal. And Jacob wanted it, but he was the younger brother by just a few minutes. He was a twin. And he was the younger brother. And so what he did, uh, he tricked his brother Esau into trading a bowl of soup for his birthright. He scammed him. He conned him. And Jacob then pretended to be Esau and deceived his blind father into giving him his older brother's blessing. And he got two-thirds of the inheritance. He got his brother's birthright. He scammed. It It was a con. And he got his way. And as you can imagine, when Esau kind of figured out what had happened, Esau was angry. So angry that he wanted to kill Jacob. And so Jacob, running for his life, he flees his town. And he took the money and he ran. And he got as far away from there as he could. And now, here the story picks up 20 years later. And he's lived far from home all these years. He's built a new life. He had kids. He's trying to distance himself from his past but then God speaks into his life and says, I want you, Jacob, to go back home. And when you go home, you're going to prosper. And Jacob's like, go back home and prosper. Like back home, there's no way I can prosper back there. That back there, if I go back there, I will be destroyed. I'll be laughed out of town at best. I'll be killed at worst. But God says, go back to where you're from. And you have to wonder that Jacob, he's nervous about this whole day. He's thinking, what's Esau going to say? What's my family going to say? Is Esau going to kill me? He's thinking, I'll never make it out alive. But God says to him, go home and I'll protect you. But then our story picks up in verse 6. He gets some disturbing news on his journey home. It says, when the messengers returned to Jacob... They said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. And this is an understatement, if I've ever heard one. It says, in great fear and distress, you're like, He's, he is terrified. In pure terror, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. Jacob, in this moment, he's panicking. He's terrified. His lies, his trickery, his scamming, his deception are all converging into this moment in his life where his past has caught up with him. His brother Esau, who he scammed out of all of his inheritance, now has 400 men with him, an army. And he's coming to meet Jacob. And Jacob's like, I don't know if I can survive this. Like 400 men are coming toward him. And Jacob's like, what am I going to do? And so this story, Genesis 32, it is a story about a desperate man in a desperate situation, fearing for his life. But he's in a situation that he created for himself. See, I I mean, he created this mess. It was his lying, it was his deception that has put him in this position. But in his desperation, he prays. Look at verse 9. He says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, it was you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. You see what Jacob's doing. He's holding God's word up to him. And he's saying, God, you told me that you would protect me. You told me to go home and I would prosper. But now I'm hearing these reports that my brother has 400 men with him. God, I'm going to hold your word back up to you and trust that you're going to keep me safe. He says, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, because I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said to me, and he holds God's word up up to him again, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sands of the sea which cannot be counted. Jacob says to God, God, you have promised all these things. I'm going to hold you to it because your promise is all that I have right now. Jacob is saying, look, I know I've messed up. I know I've been a liar. I know I've been deceptive. I know I've manipulated. I know I've done some bad things. But you said you would protect me and that I would prosper. He's holding God's word back up to him. He's saying, God, things do not look good for me right now. And your promise is the only thing that I have. God, don't let Esau kill me. And look down to verse 22. We're going to skip down. It says, that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. Now, I'm going to stop right there, okay? People get, people often say, well, you know, the Bible, polygamy, two wives. Listen, Just a good Bible lesson for you. Just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean it's prescribing it, okay? If you just keep reading, if you read the story of Jacob, two wives did not work out well for him, okay? Just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean it prescribes something, okay? So he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons. That's traveling with 11 sons. That sounds hard. I'm taking my son up to Harlem this afternoon to go to the jazz festival. And I'm already, you know, a long train ride. That's a long train ride. I can't imagine if there's, I had 11 sons. But he took his 11 sons and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And listen to this. So he sent everybody on. In verse 24 it says, And Jacob was left all alone. Now I want you to think about this. Try to put yourself in his position. He knows that his brother is coming to him with 400 men. And he assumes his brother's coming to attack him. He's sent everybody on their way to protect them. But now here he is. He's sitting all by himself. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation or you've had that feeling where you're all alone and you feel like your past is about to catch up to you. That can be a terrifying feeling, can't it? Amen. That can be a terrifying moment. You know that time, it's, it's when you get that call that says, hey, hey, we need to talk about some things. I'm coming to meet you. And you're sitting in your living room waiting for that, the door to ring. And you're going, what is this conversation going to be about? Amen. It's that time when you're all alone. You're reflecting on your mistakes and you're wondering how they're going to catch up to you and what the fallout is going to be. And Jacob is all alone, he's in his isolation, and he's probably replaying his entire life. And he's probably thinking about the very fact that from his very birth, he has been competitive. Particularly with his brother. In fact, if you read the story of Jacob and Esau's birth, Esau was born first, and Jacob came out holding on to his heel. It's like he was trying to pull him back so that he could be first. First. In fact, the name Jacob can be translated a variety of ways. It can be translated as heel grabber, or grasping, or trickster, or liar. Some translations said the most, the, if you really want to translate the name Jacob in the Bible, in the Hebrew language, it might be something like this whatever it takes to get ahead. And maybe Jacob is recalling his life, and he's thinking, all my life I've been selfish. I've tricked. I've deceived. I've done everything possible in my life to manipulate everyone and every situation so that I can get what I want. And now, here it is. It's all coming to a head in this moment, and it's about to catch up to me, and I'm about to pay for all of my lies, all of my deception, all of my manipulation. And he's terrified. But he may also in that moment be recalling wounds from his childhood. Those can be painful. Here's a young man. Here's a boy who always wanted a blessing from his father. Isn't that what we crave? A blessing from our father. And men, if you're a father, would you please today speak a blessing over your children? He just wanted a blessing from his father. And he was probably thinking about the fact that his father had always preferred his more masculine older brother Esau to him. And those wounds were coming up. And his mother had always preferred him the more sensitive son. But Jacob was crafty. He got his revenge on his brother. His life had been marked by a constant wrestling with his older brother and now he's left alone by the river all by himself to consider the costs of such competitiveness and such scheming and tricking and conning and conniving and what I love is the Bible gives in the book of Genesis you read the book of Genesis and it is full of details It is all about details. But right here in this story, there's just like this gap. There's no details, no introduction for what is about to happen. It just simply says a man randomly appears and begins fighting with Jacob. Like there's no warning. There's no like lead up. It's just like Jacob's all alone. And then boom, right here, verse 24, a man came and wrestled with him till daybreak. You're like, that came out of left field. What is going on? There's a man wrestling with Jacob. And verse 25 says, When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And you're like, what? What just happened? Jacob was all alone, sitting by a river, contemplating his life, and now he's in a fight. And a man, this mysterious man, just with a touch... Pulls his hip out of socket. And then the man says, this mysterious man says, let me go for it is daybreak. And then Jacob, all of his life has been about ambition and getting what he wants. All of of that ambition now is channeled into one tenacious prayer. Jacob says to this mysterious man, he says, I will not let go until you bless me. I need a blessing. I will not let go. He says, bless me. Remember, he's a grasper. Now he's grasping at a blessing. And I wonder if you know that prayer. God, bless me. Or bless me. See, we all want to be blessed. We're all seeking a blessing. That's what we're doing. That's, what, like, that's why we make the decisions we do. We want a blessing. We either want it from our peers, we want it from our family, we want it from maybe our enemies, we want it from our uh, parents, or we want it from whomever. We're all seeking a blessing. It's why we do whatever it is that we do. We want someone to speak over to us that we matter. And we all want a blessing, but what are we asking for when we ask for a blessing? What we're asking for is, Give me what I think I need to be happy is what we often ask God. When we say, God bless me, we're saying, God, give me what I think I need. But the Bible says that these two men wrestled through the night and this man wounded Jacob's hip. He touched Jacob at his strongest point and wounded him. See, Jacob knows in this moment that he is overmatched. That he has no strength, he has no power, and he experiences something that he's never before experienced in his life. And that's frailty and vulnerability. Like your hip socket. This man touched his hip socket and he threw it out of place. You know, the hip is one of the strongest points of the body. That's why it's so detrimental when you break your hip. I mean, wrestlers leverage off of their hips to exert power. Sprinters, They push with their hips to to come out of the starting blocks. Jumpers. It's their hips that they leverage off of to jump. It's the strongest point of an athlete. Now, what is the point in your life that you think is the strongest thing you have to offer? What is the strong point in your life, the thing that you think will give you a leg up on the blessing that you want? What do you use to console yourself? What do you use uh, to... uh, Define yourself. This is what needs to be touched before you can truly be blessed. Amen. This is what needs to be touched before you can be blessed. Where is where, your pride? What are you most proud of? Where do you find your identity? Where, what, in what and in whom do you stake your reputation? That must be touched before you can be blessed. You must be humbled. Before you can experience blessing. And here's the truth all of us want to be blessed, don't we? Amen. But none of us wants to walk with a limp, do we? Jesus. Nobody wants to be desperate enough to beg. But Jacob is desperate now, he's overmatched. He's humbled. He's limping. He has nothing to offer, no strength to stand on. And so with all that he has left to do, no more tricking, no more conniving, no more manipulating. He just says, look, I'm not, I don't know who you are, but I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And the man responds to Jacob. He says, verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? And this morning, I introduced myself to several of you, and I said, "Hey, what's your name? My name's Will. What's your name?" Well, in this moment right here, to, for this man to ask Jacob, "What is your name?" It's not a simple question like, "Hey, hey, what do people call you?" See, because in Hebrew culture, you know, in our culture today, I think our names are basically just sound. It's the sound that our parents liked. My parents liked the way Will McGee sounded, so they named me Will. No real meaning behind it. They just named me Will. But in Hebrew culture, your name was a symbol of your character. In fact, your name was a prophetic word spoken over your life. It was what your parents expected for you. It's what they dreamed for you or it's what they feared for you. It's a prophetic word over your life. And this man, when he says, what is your name? He's not asking Jacob, hey, uh, tell me your name. He was asking Jacob, tell me who you are. What is your nature? And he's forcing Jacob to admit. Remember, the name Jacob means heel grabber, grasper. He's forcing Jacob to to say out loud who he is. That name means heel grabber. It also means cheater. Esau said after Jacob stole his blessing in Genesis 27, he says, Is it not right that he is named Jacob? For two times he has cheated me. And in his vulnerability, Jacob has to admit his name. He has to admit he's a liar. He has to admit he's a cheat. He has to admit that he's a fraud. And he is forced to face the reality of his shortcomings. And it says here in the scriptures that he answered. And he said, My name is Jacob There's a famous passage in the book of Jeremiah that speaks about the nature of our hearts. Perhaps you've heard it. Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know that word for deceitful? You know what the Hebrew word is? Jacob. The human heart is Jacob. Jacob. Above all things, desperately sick. See, we think this is a story about Jacob, but the scriptures say that all of our hearts are Jacob. This story is about us as well, and it has taken Jacob over 20 years to be fully honest with himself, to say his name, but he says it here, and his name is his confession. And his confession leads to the blessing that he craved. And right here, he is given a brand new name. Look at where verse 28 says. It says, Then the mysterious man said, Your name will no longer be called Jacob. Now, what does that mean? Your name will no longer be Jacob. You know what it means? It means, Jacob, your past is irrelevant. Your mistakes are now forgotten. Whatever it is that you have done that is no longer you, you can have a new identity. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Listen to this. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. you got to lose to know how to win. Jacob has finally been defeated, but God says that in his defeat, now he has prevailed. Because he wrestled with God. And Jacob says in verse 29, he says, will you please tell me your name? Remember, this isn't asking for what you're called. It's asking, will you tell me who you are? And the man replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And the man never gives Jacob his name, but Jacob knows. Do you? It was God. In fact, some theologians call, believe this is what's called a Christophany. Meaning that Jesus himself came down into the story of redemption history right there in Genesis 32. That perhaps it was Jesus himself who wrestled with Jacob. But look at verse 30. Jacob knew who it was because he called that place Penel saying it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. One translation of the Bible says, I named it Penel because for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Now don't miss this final, this closing statement. It says the sun rose above above him and as he passed Penel, he was limping because of his hip. I love that. Jacob leaves this wrestling, this struggling with God, but he leaves with a limp. And now he's going to face his brother Esau in perhaps a battle, and he's wounded. And I don't want to leave you hanging. The story, actually, Jacob gets, he goes to his brother with his new name and his new limp. But the beautiful thing is not only has God changed Jacob, but God has changed Esau as well, and Esau runs to embrace him. And the two brothers are reconciled, and Jacob has experienced a blessing, both from God and with man, with his family. So that's our story, okay? Genesis 32. Now let me give you two things to take home with you. First thing I want you to know before you leave today is don't hate your limp. See, some of you have wrestled with God in ways that I probably couldn't even fathom. Some of you have wrestled with God in this life in ways that most of us in this room could never understand. And whatever it is, you have wrestled with God and it has left you wounded. Some of you, there is a, 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 an event or a moment in your life where everything changed. And, 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 and that, it's, your, it's a limp that you carry with you. You were wounded, you were hurt. And you move through life differently because of that event. And like Jacob, you now walk through life with a limp. Several years ago, I was preaching at a Celebrate Recovery. Are you guys familiar with that ministry? It's a, like a 12-step recovery program based in uh, the Scriptures. And I was preaching at this service and had a great time. We have a Celebrate Recovery at our church um, in Bay Ridge. And, uh, so I love silver recovery, but after the message I was done and I was talking to some people afterwards and a man comes up to me and he's walking up to me to, to, for prayer or to talk, or I don't really know what he's got, but he's got a face tattoo. Now I've got tattoos. I'm all about tattoos. uh, But when somebody has a face tattoo, I kind of notice. Okay. Um, and I was like, okay, guy with a face tattoo, you know, all right, he's coming to talk to me. What's this going to be about? And as he gets closer, I see that the face tattoo right above his forehead says 5150. And I was like, "What in, what is that? And so he's talking to me. I mean, he's got his Bible with him, a smile on his face. He's telling me he enjoyed the sermon. He's telling me all this stuff. And I'm like, hey, man, look, I, I, you got a tattoo on your face, so I got to bring it up. I said, what, what, is the, what is 5150? He said, it's police code. For an insane person on the loose. Yeah. And I'm making sure that my associate pastor is like next to me. Making sure I got back up, you know. But this was a guy. He had gotten that tattoo when he was in prison. And while he was in prison, someone had shared Christ with him. He became a follower of Jesus. At that time, he was a few years sober. He was fighting off the addiction's. From his life, he was out of prison and he was trying to stay out and do the right thing. And we got to talking we kind of had a good little friendly conversation. And I said to him, I said, you know, I said, I've actually heard about, I said, there's a government program where the government can actually, will actually pay for you to get, um, it's a government program for ex-cons that have offensive tattoos. The government will actually pay for tattoo removal. And I said, man, have you ever heard about this? I was like, I mean, I said, I could, uh, my wife's a social worker. We could probably find a way for the government to get rid of that tattoo. He's like, oh yeah, I know all about that. Everybody tells me about it. He said, but "The truth is, I don't want this tattoo to come off. He said, because every day when I look in the mirror, it reminds me of who I once was. Amen. And who by God's grace, I am no longer. Thank you, Jesus. In some ways, what that man said is that tattoo, crazy person on the loose. That's my limp, he said. It reminds me of who I used to be, but now who I am by the grace of Jesus. And here's what I want you to see this morning. Your limp, whatever it is, your mistakes, your past, it has the potential to be the greatest blessing and the greatest witness in your life. Because it forces you to see yourself for who you are and cling to Jesus. And know that He is gracious to save you and that He is gracious to love you and cleanse you and forgive you despite whatever it is is that's in your past. That limp in your life, it is a reminder to you to hold His Word up to Him. God, you said that I'm a new creation. You said that my sins are as far from the east as from the west. And if you say that, that means that I don't have to hold my own past and my own shame against myself. Because your Word says that I'm forgiven. See, your limp can be, actually be a reminder for you to remember God's promises. And like Jacob, you must continue to remind God of the promises He has made you. I will not let you go until you bless me. Bless me, God. That's not a wrong prayer to pray. Did you know that? It's not wrong to wake up in the morning and say, God, bless me today. Because you're the only one who can. Do not hate your limp. Some of you in this life, you've experienced devastating wounds. Some of those wounds are wounds that you've inflicted on yourself. A failed marriage, a failed relationship, financial debt, an addiction. Your secrets maybe have come to light. You're exposed. You've been found out. Your lies have been discovered and you don't have anywhere to hide. Maybe a mistake that you've made has left you to live with certain consequences in your, that you now have to live with in your life. But whatever it is, do not hate your limp. Because your limp can be the very thing that pushes you toward Christ. God wants to use your limp to bring you closer to Him. Paul, The Apostle Paul, he used to talk about this thing called the thorn in his side on three separate occasions, Paul says, take this thorn in my flesh away. And we don't really know what the thorn in the flesh is. We, I mean, it's probably not a literal thorn in his flesh because you can take that out. Some scholars think it was like he was blind. Some think he had like a withered hand. Some think he had like a really annoying coworker. That's not true, that part. But Paul's like, God, whatever it is, whether it was blindness, whether it was a withered hand, whatever it was, there was something in his life that weakened him. And he says that three times he prayed for God to take it away. And God said no every time. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, God told me, if my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul then said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly because of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, don't hate your limp. God's grace is sufficient. And when you are weak, he is strong. Amen. Final thing I want you to see this morning is that if you want to be blessed by God, not only do you have to not hate your limp, but you have to admit your name. You have to admit your name, not your accomplishments. So many of us, when we want a blessing from God, we list all of our accomplishments. God, here's all I've done. Here's all I've given. Here's all I've achieved. Here's everything I've done for you. No, but if you want to receive a blessing from God, God doesn't want your sacrifices of all your impressive stuff. Amen. He wants a broken, and contri- a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The scriptures say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the greatest blessing of all, the kingdom of heaven. Do you want a blessing? You must admit who you are. Not what you've done, but who you are. Part of receiving the grace of God means that you have to lay who you are at his feet. What are your mistakes? Give those to him. What do you not want others to know? Give that to him. What is in your heart? Jeremiah 17.9 says that your heart is Jacob. See, the blessing of God is not a result of your activity for Him. But rather, the blessing of God is a result of your admission that all of God's blessings are because of His grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you want God's blessing? You must must bring it humbly. I heard one teacher say one time, if you come to God with full hands... God, here's all I've done for you. I'm carrying all that, here's the things I've done, God. If you come to God with full hands, he has no place to put himself. But Amen. if you come to God with empty hands, God, I have nothing to offer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then he can put himself there. Amen. Deliverance comes when we admit that we have failed to measure up to the expectation of the holiness that God demands from us. Like Jacob, we are liars, we are deceivers, we are cheaters. And our only hope is that our names can be changed from Jacob to Israel. Amen. From sinner to saint. And you know, only an authority can change a name. You, can't, you know you can't just change your name? Like you can't just say, I'm going to change my name today. You got to go to the courthouse. You got to stand before a judge. Uh, someone with greater authority than you must change your name. The only person that can give you a name is a parent or a judge. And our God is both. And when Jesus died on the cross, in fact, my my oldest son was adopted. And when he was born, he didn't have a last name. His name was just Baruch, which means blessed. And when we adopted him, we stood before a judge and I held him in my arms. And the judge said with his gavel, Actually, it was she, sorry. She said, she put the gavel down. She said, he's adopted. What do you want his name to be? I said, his name is going to be Baruch William McGee. Actually, his first name is Israel. Israel Baruch William McGee. I gave him my name. And in that moment, the judge declared it as happened. And our God is both father and judge. He has the authority to change your name from enemy of God to child of God. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he paid for your adoption fees with his blood. And now our new father changes our name from sinner to son and daughter. But only if we will first admit that our name needs to be changed. Galatians 4 says when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has spent, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You get the inheritance. That inheritance that Jacob was scheming for all along, it was his for the taking if he had just given himself to God in the first place. And it's there for you to take as well. Admit your name, receive a new one, and receive a new inheritance from your father. How do you find joy in difficult circumstances? You look to the promises of God. The promises that say that even your greatest failures are not the final word over your life. Your earthly father may never have spoken a blessing over you. But God our Father speaks a truer and better word. And when you wrestle with God, you will see that he can overpower you with his grace and he will give you a new life. Though in your new life, you may walk with a little bit of a limp. But that's okay because it reminds you of his grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of Jacob. And the truth is, Jacob's story is our story. Amen. <laughs> we're all cheaters. We're all liars. We're all deceivers. Even often, the person we lie the most to is ourselves. We tell ourselves that we're fine. We tell ourselves that we are okay. We tell ourselves that we're self-sufficient. But the truth is, God, that we are nothing without you. And your inheritance, your gifts, your blessing only comes when we admit that we don't deserve it and we, that we can't earn it. And so God, I pray for these, this church today, for Recovery House, that they would admit their name. That the individuals in this room, that they would admit who they are, but then remember who you've made them. And God, I pray that we would not hate our limps. There are probably a lot of limps in this room. And oftentimes because of our limps, God, we think that we can't be used by you. But it's our very limp that we can point to to point others to the grace that you've offered us in your son, Jesus. And so God, I pray that whatever hand that life has dealt us, whatever our life experience is, that we can look back on our lives and say that you've been faithful. And it's-